It's pretty much common knowledge that today there is no one thing that art has to look like. Today's art can be video, it can be abstract painting, it can be representational painting, it can be sculpture, it can even be a video game or an intervention in the world. Although all of this may still feel like a relatively recent development, I think it's easy to forget that at this point, we're all kind of living with this picture of what art is that's like 50 years old. You know, this, this idea that um, there are no more rules and art can be anything it wants to be and all you can say about art is that you can't say anything at all about art. This is a piece of ideology that hasn't been examined in decades. Literally decades. Well, with all the stuff that's going on in the world right now, I think now is the perfect time to examine it. To have once again all of those embarrassingly sincere conversations we used to have about what art is and where it's going. And not just, you know, this season or this auction cycle, but where it's really going in the future. This embarrassingly serious subject is what I propose to talk about now. This is Capital A, Episode 5, The State of Art Today. Take a walk through an art fair or an open studio event and ask yourself, what is the unifying theme of art today? What is its character? Chances are, if you manage to come up with an answer at all, it'll probably be some kind of mishmash of unrelated or slightly overlapping tendencies without any sort of like really unifying element common to them all. Just off the top of my head, what are the tendencies that I've seen a lot of recently? Um... Social practice remains really central to the art world. Um, especially now, there's a lot of um, economic critique, artists doing research into um, you know, ties between corporations and housing, things like that. Um, there's a fair amount of abstraction, what we call you know, abstraction when it's good or zombie formalism when it's bad. Um, there's a lot of diaristic art out there, like you know, snapshots or... Uh, uh, video recordings of artists' everyday experiences. And there's a lot of artists working with um, marginalized identities, you know, uh, taking a stance from the periphery and looking back into the center, describing what they see. And uh, in all of these categories, there are, there's good work being done, there's, you know, not so good work being done, but there's no sense that any of it really falls under uh, a pattern that is common to all the rest of it. You could, of course, try by a series of mental gymnastics to come up with some kind of theory about what it is that unites all of it. Uh, but chances are, at least 
with the theories that I've seen of this kind, it's it's always something that's either too abstract and broad that isn't really saying anything, or you know so specific that it leaves large parts of the art world out, especially um, large parts of the art world that's out there beyond the New York Chelsea gallery circuit. The alternative, of course, is to just give up and say, well, there's nothing that unites all art today. Art can be anything it wants to be, and whatever rules you try to impose on it, there will always be some artist or some work that proves you wrong. Ironically, it's this lack of a definition which is most often taken to be the defining characteristic of contemporary art. And this is where things get interesting, because this isn't a new idea. It was first articulated, or perhaps most famously articulated, in the 1980s by the philosopher and art critic Arthur Danto in his essay, The End of Art. For Danto, art history from approximately the Renaissance through modernism follows a certain linear trajectory. So mannerism is a response to Renaissance humanism, and from mannerism you get to the Baroque, and the Baroque goes to Rococo, and Rococo gets into neoclassical, romantic, and finally get modernism, right? And all of these steps are perceived at the time as logical and necessary advances. So you wouldn't want to paint like Poussin in the age of Pollock for the same reason that you wouldn't drive a carriage in the age of the automobile. Now all of this changes in the 1960s with the advent of minimalism and pop. Minimalism and pop bring art to its essential question, which is, why is this art? And he's specifically thinking of Andy Warhol's Brillo boxes here, right? Why is a Brillo box by Warhol art while a Brillo box by Brillo not art? And the point for Danto is that this question is the necessary outcome or conclusion of a hundred years of modernist logic, right? For a hundred years, artists had been stripping away things that had previously thought to be essential. So, you know, a full range of color, representation, narrative, all of these things get stripped away in the search for the core essence of what it is that makes a painting a painting, a sculpture a sculpture, etc. And what he discovers is that at the base of this, when you follow this logic to its conclusion, what it is that makes a work of art a work of art is simply the fact that an artist calls it a work of art, right? What makes a Brillo box by Warhol art is the fact that Andy Warhol called it a piece of art and put it in a gallery. From this follow two necessary consequences. One, there can no longer be any rules about what art has to be, do, or look like. I mean, if what makes something art is simply the fact that I call it art, then there can be no physical or formal properties that something needs to have in order to be a work of art. Two, and I think this is the really more momentous one, there's no longer this sense of art's historical journey, right? There's no longer this imperative to surpass the previous generation by breaking even more rules than they broke or, you know, pushing art further than they pushed it. If art can be anything at all times, then there's no progress. It's just always all available all the time. Here's a quote from Danto's book, After the End of Art. The basic perception of the contemporary spirit was formed on the principle of a museum in which all art has a rightful place where there is no a priori criterion as to what art must look like, and there is no narrative into which the museum's contents must all fit. Artists today treat museums as filled not with dead art, but with living artistic options. Now, there are any number of problems with this idea. First of all, there's a basic chronological problem. 
Danto believes that art reaches this point of its essential question in the 1960s with Andy Warhol's Brillo boxes. But in fact, in 1917, Marcel Duchamp had already put a urinal in a gallery and called it art. And in some ways, Duchamp's gesture was even more radical in 1917 than Warhol's was in, 19, in the 1960s because Duchamp's urinal was an honest-to-goodness urinal. It was prefabricated. He just bought it somewhere in a factory and put it on display, whereas, as far as I know, Andy Warhol's Brillo boxes were made of wood and painted by hand. So it would seem that rather than reaching this crucial point at the end of a long lineage of modernism, it happened right like in the middle of things in 1917. Another problem is that no artist that I have ever met actually talks about museums in this way, right? No artist that I know goes to museums looking for their next living artistic stylistic option. That's just not how we think of the art of the past. And finally, Danto's picture here relies on an explicitly Hegelian understanding of how history works, right? There's progress, there's progress, there's progress, and finally, you hit some kind of horizon line, at which point history is over and you enter a post-historical uh, eternity. This view of history, needless to say, is extremely questionable, right? I think most people would take issue with the Hegelian view of history or what we think of as the Hegelian view of history, because actually Hegel's view was much more nuanced than this sort of caricature that, uh, that we remember of him. But that's neither here nor there. The point is that this, call it pseudo-Hegelian view of history, is something that many people would hold suspect in any other field. But for some reason in art history, we kind of take it for granted. Despite all these problems, Danto's view of the contemporary spirit, this place where all the rules have been broken and so there's nowhere further to go, continues to be the default ideology of the art world today. And I say default because we don't really talk about this stuff, do we? I mean, when's the last time you sat down with a friend over a glass of beer and discussed what art is, where it comes from, and where it's going, right? We don't, we don't really have these conversations anymore. And I think the reason is that we all kind of tacitly accept Danto's picture of this post-historical period in art that we're in where all bets are off and anything goes from now until the end of time, forever and ever, it'll always be like this. Thank you very much. Good night. Well, if this is the default ideology of art today, then I have a different take. I believe that there is a golden thread that runs through art today. I think there is a commonality that you can point to and say, this is what the art of the present is. And it's not a common content or even a common form so much. It's really more of a common attitude or a common mode of production, a certain spirit in which art today is made and which borrows heavily from the dominant spirit of our time, the Zen of marketing and branding. The best place to pick up on the ideology of contemporary art is at an art fair or, even better, at an open studio event. There, first of all, you'll be just shocked by how many artists they, there are out there doing stuff. But um, 
you know, secondly, I think when you when you step into one of these places, there's a certain feeling that you get that you're in like a marketplace. And what's being sold to you or what's being branded at you are the artists themselves and their work. To put it simply, artists today are understood to be content producers and managers of their own brand. Just like YouTube celebrities, just like Instagram models, they are each entrepreneurs that are responsible for their own brand in the world and selling their content to an audience. Now, I'm not trying to say that artists today or emerging artists in particular are in some way more materialist or more career-driven than they were in the past. I think this is a response to a certain atmosphere or a certain cultural soup that we're all swimming in. As emerging artists, we look out onto a crowded cultural marketplace and see other artists carve out niches for themselves. And we understand that in order to be competitive, we have to have a unique brand, shtick, or interest of our own. Emerging artists, I think, search for this interest obsessively and in a completely surreal way, right? Asking themselves questions like, what is my interest? What am I interested in? This surreal self-exploration is only encouraged by many of our art schools where artists are encouraged to um, look at themselves, their biography, and their place in the socioeconomic order and ask themselves what is their unique perspective that they can provide through their work. And, you know, I don't mean to knock it. Of course, it's important to understand who you are and where you come from. But just as often, this becomes an exercise in self-positioning as a quest for self-knowledge. And again, the best place to pick up on this is at an art fair or an open studio. Art fairs and open studio events are lined with the booths of these cultural peddlers who are trying to familiarize you with their interests as efficiently as possible. I'm a collage artist interested in city grids and demographics. Over there, there's a video artist who's interested in, uh, you know, childhood memories and theories of the abject or whatever it is. And the hope is always to find your audience, right? To find those people whose interests align with your interest. If that happy event occurs, then maybe the artist will make a sale or form a new contact or simply pick up a a new follower on Instagram. And if it doesn't occur, then, you know, generally no offense is taken. It's just that the visitor's interest is different from the artist's interest and maybe another booth will be more to their liking. In either case, the operation is one of choice, both selection and self-identification. Just like you pick a perfume or a car that's right for you, your artistic tastes reflect the person that you are and the persona that you put out into the world. Now, the more savvy of today's cultural producers aren't just waiting around hoping to attract followers that have the same interests that they do. I think what separates the most successful artists today is that they understand that the content and the brand are different. The content or interest of your work is just one part of a comprehensive brand strategy that can be monetized and traded. And, you know, you don't have to be a Warhol or a Coons to work this way. You don't have to thematize your brand in your art itself. All you need is like an image or a persona or a biography or whatever that is amenable to what collectors and institutions want to say about themselves. To take a few examples, artists like Ai Weiwei on one side of the political divide and Takashi Murakami on the other are what Pierre Bourdieu calls classified and classifying, which is to say that they are used by their consumers to say something about themselves. If you are like a museum or a a nonprofit institution that's trying to communicate a sort of, um, 
you know, resistance ethic, an ethic based around the critique of the powers that be, then Ai Weiwei is a very attractive choice for you to put out an exhibit on. If, on the other hand, you're like an art gallery or an auction house that's trying to be cool and edgy, but not necessarily bite the political and economic hands that feed you, then Takashi Murakami's skateboarder punk aesthetic slash anime thing is, uh, you know, maybe a better choice to communicate that sort of edginess without rocking the boat too hard on the social, political, and economic um, structures that fund you. The point is that in either case, it's not just the artist's work, but their whole biography, persona, and cultural profile that is part of what you are exhibiting and selling. The fact that Ai Weiwei is a dissident and has been under house arrest for however many years um, is just as visible and just as signifying or significant um, in your decision to put on his work as the work itself. Now, I by no means want to suggest by this that all successful artists out there are cynics. For whatever it's worth, I think Ai Weiwei is a true believer. Um, And I think that the market works in mysterious ways. I think oftentimes an artist's brand can accrue around them without their noticing or participating in the process. And I think, in fact, the end product is probably even better when the artist is an unwitting participant in the process because you get something, you get a brand that feels more genuine. But either way, it's not just about the work. The person doing the work is equally important in the eyes of a potential collector or a potential institution. To quote Mad Men's Don Draper, you are the product. You feeling something, that's what sells. And the most successful artists today are those whose whole personas make the collector or the institution feel something. And, you know, to a certain extent, I'm sure this has always been true. I'm sure to patrons of Michelangelo in the Renaissance, it was, uh, you know, a significant factor that he had this reputation as il divino, right, the divine. But Somehow in times past, the brand wasn't the same kind of creature that it is today. It hadn't entered into the same kind of alliance with the very identity of the person producing the content and the person consuming it. Finally, if you are neither interested in being the kind of struggling artist who's like, you know, scraping by trying to get people to notice their content and their brand, nor the kind of art world superstar whose very persona is part of the work that they put out there and sell. And if you think that this whole thing is like vaguely disgusting and art is worth more than its brand or its market value, then, you know, the market has a place for you as well. In the 1970s, land art and body art were used as a way to signal a kind of market skepticism. And social practice art has that function today. So the really creepy thing about this whole setup is that even people that want to take on an explicitly anti-market stance have a way of branding themselves, or rather are provided with a way of branding themselves in the terms of the dominant market ideology. The market has no problem with irony and has no difficulty offering an explicitly anti-market identity as part of the set of available identities to choose from and express. 
So to recap, whether you're an artist struggling on the outskirts to have anyone take notice of the content that you're producing, or an art world superstar whose persona has become its own currency, or even an anti-market purist who creates work that cannot be sold, monetized, or traded, you are basically being forced by the larger economy that the art world is a part of to constantly tell stories about yourself and who you are all the time. In a market environment that monetizes self-expression, purchasing art or even following an artist's work can function similarly to selecting Apple to tell the world that you're a hip, forward-thinking, urban creative, or, you know, BMW to signal a certain seriousness and solidarity with the worlds of policy and finance. We see this connection between freedom of choice and expression and market ideology in the way that the CIA actually financed part of the publicity around abstract expressionism in the late 40s and 50s as part of a Cold War era propaganda campaign to draw uh, a parallel in the popular imagination between free markets and free thinking. The following is a quote from a book called The Gift by Lewis Hyde. Quote, the 1950s CIA was particularly keen on abstract expressionism, which Rockefeller, that's Governor Nelson D. Rockefeller, himself famously described as, quote, free enterprise painting, end quote. You can also kind of see this connection between artistic freedom and free markets in the way that diaristic art has been hijacked from its initial context, which was at the height of the AIDS crisis, where uh, David Wynarowitz and um, Nan Golden used snapshots of their daily lives to bring exposure to marginalized bodies and people that the government and the society at large had basically forgotten about and was ready to let die. From there, these techniques of like Polaroids and uh, home videos of daily life have been hijacked by the art school educated children of the bourgeoisie who are essentially using these techniques to tell the world their story as, you know, the hip inheritors of the consuming classes. And here I come to the main point of my argument, which is that central to Danto's picture of the contemporary spirit is this notion of freedom, right? Art today is free to be anything it wants to be. But there are many definitions of freedom. And in this market environment, if contemporary art is free, it's free only in the sense of being unrestricted, not in the sense of being independent. The choices that artists and consumers make in kind of fishing around inside themselves and telling the world who they are, these choices might not be forced, but they're certainly overdetermined by the needs and worldview of capital. This is the unifying element of contemporary art today. This impoverished notion of freedom as freedom of choice, the freedom to choose anything you want from a set of predetermined options, and the constant, incessant pressure to tell your story anywhere in the world that accepts Visa or MasterCard. This is what undergirds the apparent diversity of contemporary art, and this is what forms its unifying essence. So, you might be saying, well, so what? What's the problem? So we live in a consumer society and we've modeled the way that we talk about art on the model of other products that our culture produces and consumes. What's the issue? Well, I'd argue there's three problems here. One, 
Anyone that knows anything about marketing, or has watched an episode of Mad Men even, knows that the principal function of marketing in a consumer society is to create interests and desires where there previously were none. The purpose of marketing is not to help you find the products that match your needs. The purpose of marketing is to create needs within you for the products that the marketer is selling. At the very least, this ought to give us pause about the whole operation of looking deep down inside yourself to figure out what your interests are. Because what the discipline of marketing and the greater discipline of psychoanalysis that it derives from teach us is that your needs aren't yours. Your internal state, including your interests, are in large part an effect of the environment that you're brought up in, an environment that is at this point heavily saturated with thousands of advertisements that all of us see on a daily basis and do whatever we can to ignore, as well as much more subtle ideological structures, which are all, of course, um, in the service of whatever the status quo happens to be. All of this is to say that the person that you are is in large part, a product of the environment that you live in and continue to evolve in, which means that there's not necessarily any more truth in that person than there is in that environment. The second problem that I see is that this, all of this ought to make us rethink our understanding of art history. Remember, the story goes that at some point in the 60s, art's internal logic of constantly like drilling down into its conditions of possibility in the search of its own essence, that logic finally exhausted itself by breaking the last of its own rules, and now we're living in a post-history of art where everything is permitted and we are all free to make whatever art we want to. But given the connection between this idea of freedom of choice and consumer praxis, we should consider whether... You know, the freedom of contemporary art, as it was celebrated by Arthur Danto, is less a result of art's internal logic exhausting itself and more a product of capitalism's unique ability to sell back to consumers their own identities. Maybe this Wild West moment that art is living through where everything goes has nothing at all to do with art's internal logic exhausting itself. Maybe, rather, what it has to do with is the internal logic of the greater sociopolitical moment of which art is only one small part. Finally, three. The idea of freedom is freedom of choice, the freedom to choose anything you want from a set of predetermined options is not the only definition of freedom that's out there and certainly not the most powerful idea of freedom we can imagine. There's a much older and I think more radical concept of freedom as the freedom to change the options themselves. That's what freedom meant to a whole generation of artists before Pollock and there's no reason that we can't get that idea of freedom back. These are some of the thoughts that I'd like to get into in a little bit more detail over the course of the next few episodes. I hope you'll join me. This has been Capital A, Unauthorized Opinions on Art and Culture. Thank you for listening.